Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Salve. Ciao. Buongiorno. Greetings and welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. We are your hosts. I'm Ellen Nirenberg from Wesleyan University. And I'm Giancarlo Lombardi from the College of Staten Island and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Nicoletta Marini-Maio from Dickinson College. Whether you're a colleague and expert in the field of Italian studies, or just curious about Italian history, culture, politics, and language, we are your podcast destination. The aim of the Italian Studies channel is to provide a broad spectrum of listeners access to exciting new research within the field of Italian studies. Italian studies is a fascinating interdisciplinary field that spans literary studies, cultural studies, cinema and television studies, theater and performance, the history of science, the history of art and music, among many, many other fields. That's right, Nico. Our conversations here are with scholars who have produced recent research across many and varied fields and topics. Ellen, Nicoletta, and I are scholars of modern and contemporary Italian studies, but our mission is to bring you the best of new scholarship in the field, from medieval literature to the most recent cinema and television. And the focus, approaches, and methods of study will differ And what we hope emerges from our conversations is an idea of the richness the field has to offer to many and different listeners. So welcome to the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Grazie dell'ascolto. And thanks for listening. Hello, this is Ellen Nirenberg at Wesleyan University for the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. My guest today is Barbara Spackman of the University of California at Berkeley, where she is Professor of Italian Studies and Comparative Literature and the Giovanni and Ruth Elizabeth Cecchetti Chair in Italian Literature. Barbara Spackman works on Italian literature and culture from the 19th century until the present, and is especially interested in decadence, the cultural production of the fascist period, feminist theory, travel writing, and Italian Orientalism. Barbara Spackman has published on such diverse topics as macaronic poetry, Italian film during fascism, the rhetoric of illness at the end of the 19th century, Italian futurism, contemporary feminist theory, the rhetoric of Mussolini's speeches, and migrant writing in the 21st century. She is the author of three remarkable monographs within Italian studies and comparative literature, as well as a list of articles as long as my arm. Hmm. The monographs are, from 1989, Decadent Genealogies, the Rhetoric of Sickness from Baudelaire to D'Annunzio, published by Cornell University Press. From 1996, the award-winning Fascist Virilities, Rhetoric, Ideology, and Social Fantasy in Italy. Her most recent book, Accidental Orientalists, Modern Italian Travelers in Ottoman Lands, was published in 2017 by Liverpool University Press, and she was awarded Best Book by the American Association for Italian Studies. Uh, It is this text, Accidental Orientalist, that will be the subject of our conversation today. Barbara Spackman, welcome to the New Books Network and the Italian Studies Channel. 
I would like to give a brief overview of the book so that listeners uh, can have some idea of how you pre have presented uh, the topic. Accidental Orientalists gives us stories of Italian travelers to Ottoman lands in the 19th and 20th centuries who engage in what Professor Spackman calls cross-cultural dressing. We'll have a chance to discuss what makes these Orientalists accidental. But it's worth pointing out here that Italy itself was seen as the internal other within a European context, where other nation states displayed far greater national cohesiveness or were perceived to do this, and indeed were often understood as nations or national locations long before Italy was unified. In the four chapters in the epilogue that make up Accidental Orientalists, Barbara Spackman explores the ways that these Italian travelers encounter the other others as they voyage outside of Italy and encounter Muslims in Ottoman lands. After her critical preface, each of the five chapters focuses on Italian protagonists who are also frequently brought into comparison with other European travelers. In chapter one, we meet Amalia Nizzoli, who lived in Egypt following the Napoleonic invasion from the years roughly 1819 to 1828, and wrote about her experiences in a book entitled, in English, Memories of Egypt and Especially of the Customs of Oriental Women and Harems. Nitsoli was the first European woman following Lady Mary Montague to be allowed within the Egyptian harem, and it's, it's uh, that that she writes about. Chapter 2 explores the writings of Princess Cristina Trivulzio di Belgioioso, an aristocrat in exile during the 19th century. Belgioioso's writings reveal her perspective on the female space of the harem, but this time in Anatolia. Belgioioso spent five years in Anatolia writing, in French, a memoir that was published by, in 1855. This chapter focuses on cross-cultural questions of social reform and differences in hygiene as they pertain to the harem. Chapter 3 takes us away from the harem to explore Mecca as the space of masquerade through the figures of male European travelers posing as Muslim. This chapter allows our guests to theorize on the differences between attempting to pose as a Muslim man or to pass as one. An exemplar of posing might be a figure like Richard Burton. Characteristic of passing, on the other hand, would be the three late 18th and early 19th century figures that center this chapter. These figures are John Burkhart, Giovanni Belzoni, and Giovanni Finati, whose memories, and memoirs, and journeys become the bases of the chapter. In the chapter that follows, chapter four, we shift in focus, locus, and period to Milan and the writings of Leda Raffanelli, who lived between 1880 and 1971. Raffanelli's case is somewhat different in that following a three-month trip to Egypt, she converted to Islam and returned to Milan. Raffanelli is a multifaceted character difficult to pigeonhole, and her own cultural cross-dressing, performed for a different audience and in a different location, produces different outcomes. The epilogue for Accidental Orientalists brings these historical figures into dialogue with contemporary and post-colonial Italian society and culture by bringing focus to the writing of Italian-Algerian writer Amara Lacoste, who published a novel entitled Divorce Islamic Style in 2010. This novel tells the story of a Sicilian man named Christian, and the name says it all, really, 
who is asked by the Italian Secret Service to impersonate a Tunisian Muslim. As a colleague has observed, the novel reveals what happens when the narrative of migration is reversed and Italy becomes point of arrival and not of departure. So that is the uh, introduction that I'd like to um, give you for the book and how it's laid out and how Barbara Spackman uh, approaches this subject. So I'd like to start with some questions, Barbara, if I might. Please do. And and I couldn't have summarized my book better myself. Thank you. I find it sometimes difficult to summarize one's own writing. And I I am endlessly interested in the ways that other people can characterize it. So I'm glad that this passes muster. In the preface to Accidental Orientalists, you make the case for the ways in which Italian Orientalism differs from what we might call mainstream Orientalism, if we could be permitted to frame it that way. Um, The discussion about the ways the West and chiefly Europe, gazed upon and considered other countries and traditions, those apart from a Judeo-Christian tradition. I thought it might be useful at the beginning of our conversation today, and with an audience that might not be composed of experts in the field, to reprise both Orientalism as well as your vision of Italy's accidental Orientalists. Briefly, what or who is an Orientalist, and then what or who is an accidental Orientalist. Could we start by outlining some of those differences? Yes. So in in calling the objects of my study accidental Orientalists, I mean to differentiate them from professional Orientalists, the branch of scholars, historians, sociologists, and especially in the 19th century, philologists, who studied what they referred to as the Orient and who were trained in an academic tradition. These are the people whose journeys were often backed by cultural and scientific institutions and by states with imperial ambitions in the cases of Britain and France. I talk about two such Orientalists in the book by way of contrast with my accidental Orientalists, one Richard Burton, whom you've already mentioned, and not Elizabeth Taylor's Richard Burton, but the 19th century one who um, translated the Thousand and One Nights and John Lewis Burkhart. They were both trained scholars. They studied up before they traveled. They learned languages. They delved into previous writings before embarking on travels backed by Britain. My accidental Orientalists instead find themselves in Egypt or Anatolia on account of unanticipated events. Political exile, desertion from the Napoleonic army, economic opportunism, and in the case of Plato Raffanelli, happenstance. None of them had knowledge of what Edward Said called the Orientalist archive. And by that, he means a system of knowledge that created the Orient as a vast network of intertextual citation. So my starting point was a suspicion and the hope that my travelers, although certainly not immune to Orientalist attitudes and stereotypes, might nevertheless be positioned differently in relation to that archive. Their origin on the Italian peninsula is also part of this different positioning. I say peninsula rather than Italy, because for three of my four accidental Orientalists, Italy was not yet unified as a nation state. So my hunch was that the encounter of of a weak national identity with the mobility of identities made possible in the late Ottoman world would produce different configurations in the Italian case than it did in French or British cases. So that briefly is, I hope, uh, a helpful 
distinction no, between the two. No, that's really that's so useful, Barbara. Thank you, um, and thanks for uh, for parsing it so uh, so succinctly. Um, Barbara, if I might, I'd like to ask you about travel writing and uh, its role as um, this as the subject mm-hmm. of of your research. Uh, I'd like to know something more about travel writing generally, and then specifically about this corpus that you work on. Um, generally, what do you find studying the writings of travelers? What does it offer to literary and cultural studies, and then specifically to Italian studies? And um, then very particular to accidental orientalists, why these specific travelers and not, for example, other travelers? Um, how does this corpus participate potentially um, or, or contribute to the Orientalist archives? And to what extent does it counter that archive that you were talking about? Thanks. So let me say something first about travel narratives in general. Um, I, I began this project by teaching a course on travel writing that, that began with Marco Polo and ended in the 21st century. Um, so there, there was some winnowing uh, that took place. Um, travel narratives, I would say, are always about encounters with difference and otherness. And questions of the representation and figuration of difference have interested me throughout my career. How is difference, be it sexual, racial, national, class, and so on, how is it managed? How is it fixed? Or how is it disavowed? How does the encounter shape the traveler's identity, her construction of home? In the Italian case, I was particularly interested in the comparison to the British and French, and here, Italy's so-called belated arrival at nationhood and to the colonialist enterprise played a role. What happens when we're not talking about a British traveler's trip to a British colony or a French traveler's trip to a French colony? but an Italian traveler's trip to another nation's colony. Does the Italian subject occupy the place of the European subject unproblematically? Put another way, and you've already alluded to this, Ellen, what happens when Italy, in many ways, Northern Europe's internal other, travels to Europe's external others? This led me to focus on travelers to Egypt and Anatolia, the Ottoman lands of my title, where processes of Europeanization, if I can call it that, and Orientalization go hand in hand. As for why these writers in particular, well, because they all thematized not just an encounter with an other, but specifically with a Muslim other. And I became very interested in how this encounter is managed and staged. Also because it resonated loudly with our own Islamophobic historical moment. Other reasons were that because they wrote in Italian, English, and French, they allowed me to engage in a comparative study that, to a certain extent, pulls in critical writing on French and British Orientalisms and opens Italian studies to a transnational approach. And finally, because they included both men and women. That was an important factor for me, given the role that gender plays in textual constraints on what may or may not be said, both in the historical context and in Orientalist discourse itself. I hope that yeah, that's begins fantastic. to answer. Your no, question. that's really that's so useful, and I and I wanted to say that um, I think every time that we can employ a comparative frame, um, and also one that a that permits a transnationalist no, I shouldn't say transnationalist a transnational approach to uh, Italian studies, I think we 
all stand to gain um, from that by the memory of the ways in which the subjects that we are um, exploring uh, are raced, classed, sexed, nationalized, um, made specific by religion. Uh, so I, I wanted to say that from from that point of view, I find uh, accidental Orientalists really such a such a salutary intervention in the critical framework of of Italian studies. So uh, complimenti, as oh, we would thank say. You. <laughs> yeah, I, um, it's very important to remember how multilingual, in fact, um, so-called Italian writers were. Um, uh, I think we we tend to forget that, and and it's odd that even in the field of travel writing, there are very useful anthologies that anthologize viaggi, but they only anthologize those people who are writing in Italian, um, and that's you know, to renationalize subjects who were not so nationalized. In fact, you know, it's interesting because travel writing focusing on on earlier periods uh, does tend, at least it seems, to have a more transnational comparative yeah, frame. That's right. Uh, yeah. And and it's so interesting um, the ways in which you know our field got a little it got a little too specialized maybe a little too sectarian maybe a little too nationalist actually yeah yep. um, so um, and speaking of so speaking of ideology let, let's um, let's shift a little bit here um, in uh, accidental orientalists you identify two major ideological strains that recur in the text in the historical era. Uh, the first is the fear of conversion, of turning Turk, I think is what you call it, um, or what it is referred to. Um, uh, the fear of conversion to Islam, of those people who come into contact with the Islamic world. And the second concerns the ways that Orientalism shapes not only the considered non-Western subject, but also the mobile, traveling European and Western subject horror himself. Um, how do these two strains work themselves out in this study? And how might they be related to the anxiety of the extinguishability of national identity among Europeans that appears to be very alive today? Indeed. Um, I, you know, I think, as I said, they, they work hand in hand. Um, what I find in Islamophobic texts, and Amalia Nitzolis is a prime example is that the experience of the possibility of conversion to Islam is is often the moment when an already shaky identity comes undone. In, in the text I read, this means that it's also the moment when the degree to which the European subject's identity is dependent upon and determined by its difference from the non-Western subject becomes legible and becomes visible. Put simply, this is a model in which identities are constructed through difference, through the negation of another. That's something we've learned from psychoanalysis and from feminist thinkers like Irigaray, and it mimes the logic of sexual difference. One term's identity, say man, rests upon the negation of the other term's identity, say woman, which then comes to be the repository for the differences within man. All the reputedly negative differences are deported, I'm sorry, deported or deposited into this other. That's familiar to us at what Irigaray called the logic of the same. I know it sounds like we're getting away from the question, but, but we're not. The same thing happens with West and East in Orientalist discourse. And the possibility of conversion introduces panic into the supposed stability of difference. In fact, 
one discovers very quickly in reading Orientalist discourse that its logic and rhetoric both replicates that of sexual difference and redeploys the logic and rhetoric of sexual difference on the plane of cultural difference. What I mean by that is that it maps one difference, gender, onto another culture so that the so-called Orient comes to be figured as a feminized space and the West the privileged place of the male subject. I think the fact that such anxiety remains today is not surprising either, and that's because of the stubborn persistence of this particular model of identity. That's the root problem, I'd say, Mm. that we're still basing identity on the negation of another. Mm -hmm. So this touches on a question that I am interested in, which is the degrees in which Italian identity is malleable or porous in the period that you cover between um, sort of the beginning of the 19th all the way up until until the present day. I mean, La Causa's novels published in 2010 is such a fitting epilogue to the, um, right. to, the to the earlier studies. So I wondered what you might say about that. Right. So, um, so I, as you as you mentioned, I begin in the early 19th century, and and as we said before, the unification of Italy. So before Italy was a nation state, with which one could identify. So, so identities tend to be localized by region, by city, and because pre-unification Italy was ruled by a variety of foreign powers, people's citizenship varied accordingly. Amalia Nizzoli again is a case in point. She's born in Tuscany. And so thinks of herself as Tuscan, refers to herself as Tuscan. But when asked at a certain point in her narrative for her citizenship, we learn that she is Austrian because, of course, Tuscany at that point was ruled by Austria. So in a sense, that's a kind of originary weakness of national, national identity. And then when it's combined with the fluidity of identities in early 19th century Egypt, that's when I talk about malleability. Um, I had to do a great deal of homework about early 19th century Egypt and found it absolutely fascinating. Um, I learned that it was juridically possible for citizens of Christian states in Muslim territories to slide from foreign to indigenous status and back again, and that it was not rare for members of the same family to claim different nationalities and so fall under the jurisdiction of different national consuls. Um, so several of my characters are, are cases in point. Giovanni Finati also fits into this particular um, description. He's born in Ferrara. He thinks of himself as Ferrarese. He's twice conscripted, conscripted by Napoleon's army. He deserts in Albania, where he converts to Islam. He enrolls in Muhammad Ali's Alba Albanian militia. And he successfully passes as Albanian. So much so that even other so-called Italians refer to him as Albanian. Giovanni Belzoni, Giovanni and Giovanni are in the desert, Giovanni Finati, Giovanni Belzoni. Giovanni Belzoni refers to him as the Albanian. Um, so that in even such a strong supporter of unification as, as Cristina di Belgioioso had a similarly divided or, or riven identity a Lombard aristocrat who writes in French, as Lombard aristocrats did. She's first exiled by Austrian authorities and seeks refuge in Paris. And then when 
disappointed with the French in 1848, she takes refuge in Turkey. So in a nutshell, it, it's really about what is an originarily weak or riven national identity that then comes into contact with the fluidity of identities in the Mediterranean that produces a kind of malleability. Um, I think that Lacaus was, I know in fact that Lacaus was very much aware of this history um, and and it it became the kind of framework through which he then um, updates it. It's really he who's updating it as showing that now it still applies, this kind of malleability still applies, although as you've already said, in a kind of reversal of the narrative that I am tracing throughout the book. You know, it's really so fascinating um, today. It's September the 12th, 2019, that we're recording this. And the idea that family members would hold multiple uh, national identities is uh, still very much in our news. So I'm 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 thinking about that. That's true. Um, yeah. yeah, it's really um, that's really illuminating. I think um, you know without uh, falling prey to certain orientalist tropes, I wanted to talk about the harem, um, if only because the harem returns as a space uh, for the narratives of both uh, Nizzoli and uh, Di Belgioioso. So. Um, one in Egypt and the other in Anatolia. And I wondered if talking about the first two chapters of your book, uh, if you could say what are some of the common characteristics of the gaze of the non-Islamic women on the harem in these two accounts or the harems that they come into contact with? And uh, what are some ways that they distinguish themselves uh, from each other, these two accounts? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Nitsoli and Belgioso are, are both women. That's tr- true, but they're differently gendered um, on account of social class and on account of the way they position themselves in their narrative. So I want to say something about that first. Um, Nitsoli is a middle-class teenager when she arrives in Egypt. Belgioso is an aristocrat who's been exiled from Northern Italy when she arrives in Anatolia. Nitsoli has no knowledge of previous writings on the East, judging from her memoir. Belgioso instead is, she's well-read. She's schooled in French culture, which, as I said, is also the language in which she writes. So both capitalize on the fact that as women, they have access to the harem as a space forbidden to men. But each has a particular privileged access to the culture in which they find themselves and each places herself differently in relation to their narrations. Nitsili's particular privilege comes from the fact that she's very young when she arrives in Egypt and she learns to speak Arabic. So she can actually converse with the inhabitants of the harem, unlike Lady Mary Montague, who, of course, who had no Arabic at all. The mature Belgioza instead exploits her class position to avoid being lodged with the other women in the harem, which she finds to be a filthy, disgusting place. Um, so Nitsoli positions herself through a rhetoric of modesty, framing her narrative as a merely supplementary one to men's more authoritative accounts, which was a very common way, in fact, for women in the 19th century to frame their accounts. Belgioza, the aristocrat instead, represents herself as taking up the position of the exceptional woman whose mobility implies freedom from gender norms and whose exceptionality requires a disidentification with other women. And, and so in Belgioso's case, there, there is a cross-gender identification, but it's, but it's a structural one um, that has to do with her position as a knower, gendered male in relation to a feminized 
orient. I say it's a structural one rather than the more thematic kind of cross-gender identification of somebody like Isabel Eberhard who dresses as a man, um, mm-hmm. for example. So I haven't forgotten that the question was about the gaze, though. Um, I'm getting there. Uh, Nitzelli's gaze frames the Muslim women through the picturesque. She sees scenes. She sees marvelous tableau. She calls it picturesque. Right? Um, they seems to the scenes seem to be ready made for the European visitor and, they, and arrest their vision. And within the harem herself, her her gaze is a domesticating rather than an eroticizing one. So when the male painters, for example, depict the harem that they had not entered, it's always, as we know, an eroticizing gaze. It's always is a domesticating gaze. What's particularly interesting about her account, though, is the way in which the gaze is almost always quickly reversed, and she herself becomes the object of the Muslim women's gaze and of her their desire that she convert to Islam. Um, so Beljoyo is a little bit different. Like, like Nitzelli, she doesn't eroticize the women of the harem. In fact, one of the things that's most striking about it is that she makes no mention of the hammam, of the baths, that male visitors almost always speculated about because of the naked bodies they fantasized lounging about there. Nor does she aestheticize it. For her, instead, bad housekeeping takes the place of oriental splendor, and she, she recoils in hygienic horror. So the harem presents itself not as tableau, but as ripe for projects of social reform that an enlightened person such as herself, and she very much has an enlightenment intellectual tradition behind her, an enlightened person such as herself could could bring to it. So for her, the de-eroticized harem is, is no longer a place of imagined sexual transgression as it was for the male writers, but instead a place of illicit class trans- transgressions. She she finds the, the class bodies to be in touch with each other in, in disturbing ways. So we get, they're, they're different from each other and they're very different from what we're accustomed to in male speculations about the harem or, or painters um, representing the harem. Mm. You know, it's so interesting because um, the book, uh, so that, those were the the differences and the dis- the distinctions between Nizzoli and Di Belgioioso in chapters one and two. But if we take a step back and consider the architecture of the book as a whole, I wondered um, what you now, upon completion uh, of this study, make of the progression historically and chronologically, but but also the shifts between the female and male gazes and experiences. I, I keep referring to the gazes and you um, uh, rightly point out it's really a narrativization and not really a, a visualization, but the narrativization of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but the uh, the shifts between um, Nizzoli and Belgioioso we discussed, but then what about the shifts from from that to uh, the male travelers, Finati, Burton, Belzoni, mm-hmm. uh, Burkhart, um, and then back to the female conceptualization or the experience of the of the non-Western subject in chapter four. I just wondered if you might say something about the composition um, and, and what you were looking to accomplish there. Sure. I, there are a couple motivations here. Um, I wanted to be able to track several historical moments of the, de- of the development of Italian national identity. Um, and my materials almost serendipitously helped me do that. So as we said, the first group of travelers, Nizzoli, Finati, and Bilzoni, 
were traveling from pre-unification Italy to post-Napoleonic Egypt at the same historical moment, were of lower middle-class origins, and yet their experiences were very different, including their relation to Islam. But Doyozo instead, as we've said, was an aristocrat, but also a patriot who participated in the Risorgimento and whose writings include quite specific reflections, both about Islam and about the formation of the Italian state. So she marked full in focusing not only on her experience, but on that particular historical moment in which she was a player, which she was an important player. I also wanted to include an Islamophilic case, and that is Leda Raffanelli. Um, her case, convert, conversion to Islam and really an embrace of Islam, coincided with another key moment in the making of Italians, and that is the First World War and its aftermath. So it's chronology. Um, it's a spectrum that runs from Islamophobia to Islamophilia. Both of those, uh, both Islamophobia and Islamophilia, remain grounded in certain kinds of conceptions of Orientalism. This is to be certainly true, but were fundamentally different politically. Uh, Raffanelli was an anarchist um, and uh, a lifelong, in fact, anarchist. The alternation between male and female gazes was was built into this history also serendipitously, by which I mean in some way it, it organized itself, which is a wonderful thing when that happens when you're writing a book and you see it happen before your very eyes. Um, I wanted to be able to show the way in which both men and women were differentially constrained by gendered textual expectations that shaped what could be said and what could be seen and I wanted to show how the harem was the privileged space that authorized a female Orientalism and how the masquerade in Mecca performed a similar epistemological function for male writers. So that at least was how I think about the organization of, of, of the book. You know, it's really quite something um, to be envied uh, and... Um... Uh, and to pause upon and appreciate when your material, you have that sense that your material organizes itself. Naturally, it doesn't do that, right? It just, um, it the logic of it comes to one when, when you're looking at it. And um, it does lend itself also, I think, to an organic feeling about the writing that it naturally progresses when, of course, there's great craft in there. Um, so um, I, these, we talk about tourism and tourists and travelers, but I wanted to ask you about detourism and how you use this in accidental orientalists. How does this concept or how might it relate to the experience of exile in Italian yeah. culture? Yeah, so so initially, um, I mentioned that I began to work on travel writing in, in, in the context of a, of a course that was trans-historical. And at that particular moment, I was very influenced by Georges Andanabil's book, Travel as Metaphor, where he talks about a particular economy of travel. Um, and his argument is that home is thought only retroactively, only by, by leaving it behind. It's a little, it's a little, wizard, little bit Wizard of Oz, right? Um, uh, you conceive of home only after you've left it. Um, it seemed to me that this notion opened up a specific way of thinking about so-called Italians traveling away from pre-unification Italy 
when the point of reference called home was a place of historical and political instability. That that was very much the case for Nitsoli. Her family's traveling because of that very political instability. She doesn't even think of herself as Italian or European until she finds herself in Egypt. And then when she returns to the Italian peninsula and visits Milan, Florence, and Naples, as though she were now an English woman on the Grand Tour, because that's the Grand Tour route. Right? So that was what I was calling the detour. Right? So, so the first bit of traveling to Egypt is traveling not of her own choosing. It's very difficult traveling, and hence it's not tourism. It's a kind of detour. But the second bit is a detour in the sense that she had to take an alternative route through Egypt in order to establish her home identity as Italian and even more as European, right? So this detour is what Europeanizes her. In the early stages of the project, I have to admit, I thought that detourism would apply to all my travelers as neatly as it did to Amaya Nizzoli. That didn't really turn out to be the case. Um, as often happens, writing as a logic as of its own, as you've said, and things morph and twist and turn. Um, I think it probably applies to many cases of exile. I do think that home is um, established retroactively, but I think I would hesitate to generalize it to the experience of exile in Italian culture. I, 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 I don't think it covers every experience, um, but I think that often the conditions are in place um, to make that to to make that true. Right. I think perhaps it relates also back to that malleability and the porousness that we were discussing in terms right. of uh, right. in terms of identity. Perhaps it perhaps that's a better way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd like to ask you about the uh, the differences or the distinction that you make in your third chapter about your male travelers um, to Mecca uh, between pa- the difference between passing and posing. And if you could talk a little bit about that with with respect to that uh, cohort, um, but then also uh, if we could take a step back to the telescope out and then think about passing and posing with regard to your epilogue and um, Amara Lacaus. So um, uh, passing and posing. Sure. So I, I borrow this distinction um, between passing and posing from the work of my colleague, the film scholar, uh, Linda Williams. Um, uh, so simply put, those who pass dissimulate something that they are and cover over both their difference from an identity that confers privilege and their efforts to do so. Those who pose simulate something that they're not and insist upon exhibiting their distinction from a stigmatized identity. So let me give you some examples. So, and, and Williams' example. Williams is, is taking this up, um, taking the distinction up in her discussion of the jazz singer to address blackface, right? The use of blackface in which whites who pose as black do so in such a way as to exaggerate it as performance, right? They are not covering over an identity. Um, they are simulating something that they're not, but they want to make sure that you know <laughs> that underneath they're white. Okay. So this is in contrast, say, to blacks who pass as white and do quite the opposite, right? 
um, in that instance, you are covering over your difference from the identity that that confers privilege. So it was a useful distinction for me when when it came to differences in practices of cultural cross-dressing by the men of my third chapter um, who made their way into Mecca. Um, As we've said, two of them converted to Islam and successfully passed as Muslim. One of them, in fact, Finati, as Albanian. A third, Richard Burton, also entered Mecca, but his narrative highlights the skillfulness of his performance. He wants you to know at every stage how successful he is at acting. He wants you to know that it's an act. He wants you to be aware of it. So the first two passed and the third posed, to put it simply. How thrilled I was when I read Amara Lacus's 2010 novel, Divorce Islamic Style, whose main character is a Sicilian named Christian who impersonates a Tunisian Muslim in order to gain entrance to a terrorist cell known as Little Cairo. Almost too good to be true. You could have suspected that I wrote it myself just to have the perfect coda to the book. So within the narrative itself, Christian the Sicilian passes as Italian, covering over his stigmatized identity as a Southerner. So in other words, a member of an older stigmatized identity, Southerners, poses as a member of a more recent immigrant group, North Africans. This in turn has a result that familiar narratives of Southern Italian suffering and migration attach a kind of domesticating pathos to the stories of the new migrants to Italy. And then what I argued was when we step out of the world of the novel to include the writer himself, we could say that the recent Muslim slash Algerian slash Italian writer Amada Lacaus poses through his narrating character as the older stigmatized identity. And this pose allows him to pass as an Italian writer. He's Italianizing himself. Right? Um, so the analogy is with William's example of the way in which the Jew in blackface who poses as black thereby passes as white. I know that's very trash compacted <laughs> as an explanation. No, no, it's really useful. It's really useful. And you're right. You know, when those things happen, you're like, wow, this plum, this novel, the 2010 novel really does make such a fitting epilogue to, um, makes the fitting epilogue to the earlier narratives. But then, of course, also shows how, um, it, how these categories yeah. are still so useful for us for analysis, I think. Um, and really, uh, yeah, it, it yeah. is so yeah, interesting to read. So, um, yeah. Right, absolutely. Um, Barbara, we are we are lurching toward our conclusion, and this is the last question that I that I have, or that I'd like to uh, discuss with you today. Um, and it concerns mobility and the place uh, that it holds uh, in accidental orientalists. You've acknowledged how valuable theorizations of mob- mobility are to your conceptual framework. And we're in an historical moment of tremendous mobility and one in which the Mediterranean and Italy are both tremendously important and tremendously implicated. What would you hope readers would take away from accidental Orientalists in terms of the contemporary situation of Mediterranean mobility? Uh, How does the work that you've done set the stage for consideration of this mobility a reverse movement of travelers and migrants? 
And how does your research, in other words, sit alongside explicitly contemporary explorations of immigration in and around the Mediterranean? Um, I think that's that's a difficult question. Um, I think what I hoped to have done is to provide a kind of prehistory um, uh, of this kind of mobility that obviously there, there are many factors that make the present moment very different from the one I investigated. And there are many people who are far better informed than I. But it seemed to me that there was a gap in our knowledge of um, of Orientalisms in the 19th century, of course, but also a kind of, um, I think, as you said it before, we were talking about the way that um, we have we have over-Italianized the Italian subject. And I, I think that it's it's good to have this historical reminder of the degrees to which this subject was riven, divided. Barbara Spackman, thank you so much for your time uh, today to discuss your fascinating book, uh, Accidental Orientalists, uh, Modern Italian Travelers in Ottoman Lands, published by Liverpool University Press, available widely uh, for purchase and also at a library near you. Thank you so much for your time. And above all, thank you so much for this fascinating study of, um, of travelers to Ottoman lands and their encounters. Thank you, Ellen. It's been a pleasure. So thanks a lot for listening to this installment of the Italian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Please come back to check out our other podcasts on topics like art history, Italian cinema, medieval literature, television studies. And even more than that, history of thought, contemporary women's writing, gender studies, criticology. As well as politics and religion in Italy, opera, queer theory, Jewish studies, Dante, Machiavelli, you get the idea. We are your Italian Studies hosts, Giancarlo Lombardi, Nicoletta Marini-Maio, and Ellen Nirenberg. All comments and questions can be addressed to itst at gmail.com. E grazie dell'ascolto. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.